0: in this episode the people of avao tell fina ulukalala screw you and they give him the middle finger see otofa and welcome to episode 8 of the Tokyo kamea podcast this is richard and let's start the show
1: Konuru-
0: You know what time it is. Before we start an episode, we always have a recap. So here is a recap of episode 7. Tupo Toa, Tuku'aho's son, has been longing for revenge for the assassination of his father by Tupo Niwa. As part of Finau Ulkalala's inner circle and having earned his attention, he starts planting ideas in Urukalala's head that Tupou Niwa is really his enemy, that he's been conspiring against him, he's working to undermine him, he's more loved by the people that could lead to a populist uprising, and eventually he suggests to Ulkalala that Tupo Niwa must be assassinated. Now mind you, Tuponiwa and Ulukalala have the same father but different mothers, and Ulukalala and Tupotoa have the same mother but different fathers. And Ulukalala lures Tuponiwa into a trap. And Tupotoa shows up with four other men and they assassinate him by beating him to death with their clubs. And the poor, defenseless Tuponiwa, the hero of Avau dies. And the people from Vava'u just mourn his death, and at the same time, they are angry at what happened. And this whole time, Fina'ulukalala is maintaining his innocence. The people of Vava'u mourn Tuponiwa's death, and at the same time, they are angry at what happened. And To'e'umu, who is Ulukalala's aunt, becomes the new leader of Vava'u. The Vava'u people leave, they depart for Vava'u, and a few of their matapule stay behind. And two weeks later, a canoe arrives from Vava'u, and they bring the news that Toru'umu and the Vava'u chiefs uh, rejected Ulukalala's authority and declared their independence from him and his empire building. And of course, Ulukalala is just extremely furious at what he just heard and views this as an act of treachery and is now making preparations for war with Vava'u. You know what? This might be just the shortest recap I've ever done in any of the episodes. Yay! Bina Urukalala at times can be pensive, he can be astute, humorous, calculating, and temperamental. So like when he's angry, he is really, really pissed. And he's so angry that his aunt, or Umu, and the chiefs of Aba'u have turned against him that it's clouded his judgment and he refuses to take the advice of his priests, who told him to wait for more favorable conditions before launching his attacks on Vava'u. Mariner says he was so exasperated at the conduct of his aunt that not the persuasion of the priests nor the admonition of the gods could prevent him from turning his immediate attention to the necessary preparations for a speedy attack on Bava'u. Ulkalara has been selective about the advice from his priest, Mariner notes, and, and that he only follows their advice if it aligns with his, uh, whatever his ambitions and goals are. And he will show public um, veneration for the gods also if it favors him. And the people are starting to notice this and are wondering amongst themselves how he is even able to win these wars. As they are preparing to launch their attacks on Bava'u we have a little distraction. We have uh, arriving from Samoa is uh, Ulukalala's son, and his name is Moenangongo, and he's been in Samoa for five years, and he comes also with a chief by the name of Vuna. Now, there is a backstory on all of this, and I don't want to share it right now because I think it's going to distract from the story, so I will save that for another episode. But anyway, they arrive from Samoa in six canoes, a total of 60 people in their party, and uh, they first arrived in Vava'u, not knowing what the political situation was at that time but they suspected that something was odd because the people were acting really strange towards them and so they felt just to uh, bypass Vava'u and continue on to Ha'apai and it was when they got to Ha'apai that they learned um, you know what was going on. So they arrived in Lifuka Ha'apai and um, and of course Tongans being Tongans they had a big celebration. We're so extra with our celebrations, but that's one of the things I love about being Tongan. So there were two young women. They were the daughter of uh, chiefs in Tonga, and they were uh, betrothed to Moenangongo. And so when he came back from Samoa, these two young ladies were waiting to be married to him by their fathers. But he came back also with his two Samoan wives. And so he's like, okay, well, I guess I'll marry them too. And so he ended up marrying the two daughters of the Tongan chiefs that were betrothed to him. So then, uh, for those of you that are following the book, we the next couple of pages just really describes what happens at their wedding, and it's not that it's not that different from other wedding. The other wedding we talked about, where it was the daughter of Fina Urukalala married to Datu Itonga. Um, there were some things that were different. Uh, there were more uh, unique to Samoan culture, and it was the choice of Moenangongo to have his wedding be more like a Samoan-style uh, wedding. So the wedding happens a week later, um, and like I said, Mariner describes the wedding, what they wear. Um, they definitely, you know, Tongans back in those days, and even still today, we have a thing for Gieha moa, right? And so... Uh, they brought a lot of that with them from Samoa, and that was uh, the wedding attire. Mariner describes the food, and it's like uh, stuff that we've already read before. One thing that he does mention is a cake. And uh, the cake is made of, um, he describes it as mahoa root. And so just from his description, to me, it sounds like manyoketama And I love manyoketama. That is some good food right there. Mariner describes the Kieha Amoa. These mats were made entirely by hand and were very fine and large. Occupied two years making, this renders them exceedingly valuable. They are so exquisitely manufactured that one would suppose them to be woven by a loom. So the two brides are dressed in uh, their Kieha Amoa and also, uh, it sounds like to me, Kahoa made from uh, Loa Kau. And then they were oiled with a mixture of coconut oil, sandalwood, and turmeric, which Mariner describes gave their uh, body, the the tone of their skin, like an orange, uh, an orange tone. So they bring them out and they sit beside the, um, Mariner calls him the prince. This is uh, Fina Ulu son. So they sit beside him on each side they flank him on each side and then they watch a exhibition of boxing and wrestling and And so they had all the spectators from hapai there and then on one side uh, the competitors from hapai and then on the other side the competitors from samoa that came with moe um, ngangongo's party mariner writes the two parties being ready the challenges were given in the following way A man from one side runs over to the opposite party and sits down before it. He then demands if anyone will engage him. The person who chooses to accept the challenge comes forward, brandishing his club. The two combatants proceed to the middle of the circle, each attended by one from his own party, to assist as second. They next determine whether they shall fight after the Tongan or the Samoan fashion the difference of which is that the Samoan custom allows a man to beat his antagonist after he is knocked down as long as he perceives signs of motion. The Tongan mode, on the contrary, only allows him to flourish his club over his fallen foe, and the fight is at an end. The point being agreed on, the two champions for the applause of the multitude begin to engage. When they have finished, another party comes on in the same way, sometimes there are three or four sets of combatants engaged at the same time when a man gains a victory his own party gives a shout of approbation and then mariner has some um whatever it is that they're shouting here in tongan but i'm not going to read it because i it's a little suspect so if you want to look at the book it's in there i'm just going to skip that part mariner continues such was the mode in which these club fights were conducted The prince engaged in several of them and performed great feats of bravery. He fought no less than 14 or 15 battles and always came off victorious. So after the fighting with clubs was over, uh, they proceeded with boxing and wrestling. And then there is a long description of the boxing and wrestling, and I think we get the idea. Mariner continues, "Uh, These feats being over, the prince and his chiefs retired to the neighboring house to dress their heads with a sort of turban, made of white ngatu, or that's what we call feta'aki, ornamented with small red feathers. Then Moe joins his two brides, and now they are watching the entertainment, and the entertainment uh, at the wedding party was uh, mostly the songs and dances of Samoa. And while they're dancing, Moe gets up and he joins them dancing in the manner of the Samoan Islands, uh, Mariner stayed in. And then after all that, they shared out the food, You know, which we typically do. Everybody gets to take home a plate. Mariner notes that uh, there are also uh, food, large portions that were allotted by Finau's orders to also guests that were there from Fiji, from Samoa, and from the island of Futuna. So they divide out the food. They have more entertainment and more boxing. And then Mariner says, for the most part, um, the, the wedding was very Samoan. Uh, there were two things that uh, Moengangong left out, which Mariner states was the uh, the payment of something valuable to the bride's fathers by the bridegroom. And this would often be like goloa, like ngatu, and uh, fine mat. And then the other part was, um, I really had to decipher this because uh, Mariner doesn't fully describe it, but he does use uh, some Latin terms. And so he's talking about... Um, There's a time when the bridegroom checks for the virginity of the brides. And the Latin words that he uses in this part of the book is... uh, Well, let's just say I saw the word digito, D-I-G-I-T-O, and I immediately thought of fingers, digits. And sure enough, when I looked up the phrase um, on Google Translate, it means the fingers and... And apparently, this is when the bridegroom checks to see if his bride is really a virgin, and this is done publicly. And so uh, that was the other thing that uh, Moengangongo decided to forego at his wedding celebration. So just some other details from the wedding celebration. There was more entertainment that was provided by the people of Hapai for the bridegroom and his two brides and his Samoan wives. And also Tufinau and um, his wife uh, Tupovehala, so who was seated next to him. And uh, this is the first time I've seen a name of one of his wives mentioned. So that was cool. And another thing that was really cool about um, this part of that day... Uh, so this is heading towards the evening, um, and this is like the night celebration. So there is a gava um, drinking going on, but then they also mentioned that um, Dupo Vihala brought some wine. And so there were three wine bottles that, um, these were wine bottles that were um, saved from the Porto prince And so this is what uh, Dupo Vihala gifted, the wedding uh, couples, how do you say... <laughs> when it's two wives. Anyways, this is what she gifted them. And also an hourglass that was also from the Porto prince And then pieces of iron um, that was also gifted to... wedding party and of course they were singing and dancing and drinking gava all into the night and um, the bridegroom and his brides all retired for the night and it looks like everyone else was still partying so the next day a mariner writes this ceremony and these rejoicings being over finau again began to turn his attention towards vavao in the first place he dispatched canoes to the different hapai islands with orders to each that all the male inhabitants accepting two of the oldest for each plantation to keep them clear of weeds, etc., the yams being all planted, should assemble within 10 days at Lifuka, armed with clubs and spears and supplied with a good store of provision. So now we see uh, Finau Ulkalala is like drafting his warriors for the attack on Ravao. Mariner writes, Being all arrived within the time proposed, Finau issued orders to all of his forces to prepare for a review. On the appointed day, they assembled on a malae, to the amount of six thousand. Wow, six thousand, all armed, painted, and dressed accordingly to some warlike fancy. And then Finau proceeds to give them um, some changes in his war tactics and in some of his strategies. And so Mariner writes, Finau then delivered a speech in which he declared his opinion that the Tongan mode of warfare had hitherto been upon a very bad principle and that instead of running forwards and then retreating accordingly as they met with advantages or disadvantages, they ought rather to remain together in a body and not to retreat on every trifling occasion, but to push forward with the most determined courage and thus dash terror into the minds of the enemies, or by standing their ground with unconquerable steadiness to strike them with astonishment at their fortitude and strength. Such, he had heard, was the way of fighting in England and Europe at large, and it claimed his highest admiration. And he added, if any man sees the point of a spear advancing upon his breast, he is not to run back like a coward, but push forward upon it, and at the risk of his life deal destruction on his foe. This last sentence he bellowed forth in a tone and a loudness of voice that made everyone tremble, for in this particular he was very remarkable. When powerfully and passionately excited, the sound of his voice was like a roaring of a wild beast and might be heard at an incredible distance. Having finished his speech, several of his warriors ran up to him, striking their clubs furiously on the ground, bidding him not to be afraid of his enemies. For that, comparatively speaking, there were no real warriors. in. Oh, oh, wait, what? Uh, excuse you? So then Fina'ul Kalala gives them just more strategies and you start to see like the way his mind works. Um, you know, adopting new battle battle strategies, having them practice over and over uh, what they should do if they were ever, you know, attacked as a group. And instead of, um, like, disbanding and running around the place that they should all, first of all, calm down and then just try to be really still and keep the unit together and then look for the right moment to strike. And, of course, you know, he's always good at giving pep talks. Mariner writes, um, he says, Lastly... He spirited them up with thoughts of glory and honor, telling them at the same time that death was a thing to be despised. Not to be feared by a brave man whose name would still live with a lasting life when his body was buried in the dust. He then dismissed them with orders that those belonging to the northern islands might immediately return home, but were shortly to proceed to Ha'ano, the northernmost island of all of Ha'apai, and there to wait the arrival of him and his southern forces on their way to Vavau. A few days after this review, a canoe arrived from Vavau with a few Hapai people who were suffered to leave that island at their particular request. They brought intelligence that it was not the wish of Dorumu and her chiefs to be at war with Hapai. Toi Umu and her chiefs considered it a duty they owed to themselves to act with strong measures in regard to Finau, whom they esteemed of so treacherous a character that a peace with him now would only be the forerunner of disaster and inglorious death to themselves, and on this account they chose rather to meet their fate in the field than to live an idle and peaceful life for a short time and at length be cruelly murdered to satisfy his revenge. They moreover stated that it was the determination of the Vavau warriors to rush out suddenly upon the white men and take possessions of their guns." A few days afterwards, all affairs being settled in regard to the management of the plantations. The canoes were refitted and launched, and early in the morning the king, and all the forces with him, about 4,000 strong, proceeded to Ha'ano, about three leagues to the north to join those who, according to the orders, were waiting for them. At Ha'ano, the king was received with customary feasting and joicing, and on the following day the gods were consulted in regard to the expedition. The answer was similar to the admonition formerly given, namely that the king should first proceed to Vava'u with three canoes only, with such men as had few or no relations at Vava'u, lest they should be tempted to desert. But above all, with such also as had not been instrumental in the assassination of Dupo'niyua, nor had been formerly his adherents, lest their presence might excite still further the anger of the Vava'u people thus accompanied they should offer terms of peace in the most friendly manner. Finau, having by this time had sufficient opportunity to reflect coolly and deliberately and therefore more wisely upon this business, entered readily into the measure. Three canoes were ready, and Finau, with some of his choicest fighting men of such description as the oracle approved of, went on board. I was in the king's canoe, and the other two Englishmen were on board one of the others, And we proceeded towards Vava'u. Okay, so did you all catch that? So the plan is, Fina'ul Kalala is to go to Vava'u, and he is to take just a few warriors... Uh, warriors that had nothing to do with uh, Tupou Niwa's assassination, and also they had no relations at uh, in Vava'u. This was the admonition from the priests of uh, Finaulukalala's uh, gods, and so uh, the plan is to go to Vava'u then with three canoes and a handful of people to propose peace. And Mariner is one of the people on those canoes. I had to look up real quick just what the distance is from. Uh, the m- most northern part of Ha'apai, um Ha'ano would be like on that northern most part of Hapai to Babao. And it's uh, 172 kilometers, which translates to 107 miles. So really not that far if you are like flying. And even if you are driving, that is just uh, uh, over an hour. And, of course, by canoe, that is, uh, and, uh, you know, technology back in those days. Definitely going to take longer. But uh, just to give you an idea of the distance between Ha'apai and Wavao. So, Mirner writes, As we approached the shores of the island, we came up with several canoes belonging to it, endeavoring to make their escape, for they fancied we were only the head canoes of a large fleet drawing near to make an attack upon Wavao. The king, however, informed them that he was not coming with warlike intentions, but that his object was peace and that he was paying them a visit for the sole purpose of adjusting matters amicably. Right, we know how you are, Finau Kalala, we know. Mariner continues, he then dismissed them and they paddled away immediately for that part of the island where the great fortress was situated. As the expedition passed a point about five miles to the southward of the fort, a number of the natives were seen on the beach painted and dressed after the manner of war and armed with clubs and spears. They menaced the visitors with their very martial gesture, furiously splashing upon the water with their clubs and shouting the war whoop loudly and repeatedly. When we had proceeded a little farther, there came up to us a canoe from the garrison with a warrior named Tahitangata. He wore a turban on his head and stated that he came with leave from Toe umu to inquire if any of Tuponiwa's murderers were on board. For he was ready, he said, to fight them and lay down his life in honor of that great and matchless chief. Now, um, Mariner describes actually um, previously to these pages about turbans. And... Um, it was custom in Tonga that you wear a turban. He calls it a turban. To me, it's just like a head wrap. It sounds like they take Ngatu and they wrap it around their heads. And the only time they wore that is during war. He also recalls that turbans are only worn during the daytime and within sight of an enemy. And so when Tahitanata approached their uh, canoe and he was wearing his turban, um, he is stating to them that he is coming to them defiantly as an enemy and he is ready to kick some ass. Finau in answer told him the purpose of his coming and that there were none of Tupo murderers on board and as to himself he was perfectly well disposed to make a peace and whatever his enemies might think of him, that was the object which was near his heart.
1: Man, this is some more bullshit.
0: So when Tahitangata hears this, he takes off his turban, he offers a piece of gava root to fina ulukalala and then he goes on board his canoe and he also kisses his feet which is a sign of respect so then fina ulukalala asks him if he can go back and just relay the message that he wishes to pass on to neafu he wants to go to neafu and leave gava there and then proceed to the fort to uh, discuss peace with the people of Vava'u. Now, according to my Google Earth um, app, the distance from Neafu to Feletoa, where this fort is built, is about three miles. So then Taitangata goes back to relay the message, and meantime, uh, Final directs his uh, three canoes towards Vava'u, and um, they arrive in Vava'u, there's no opposition, and he left the kava there with um usual ceremony according to mariner then it looks like they stay in uh, Vava'u overnight and then the next day um, they head towards the fort and so he takes the three canoes there's a little inlet for those of you that are familiar with the geography of Vava'u, and one of the reasons why uh, and i thought this was brilliant uh, the location of the fort in feletoa it sits on like this cliff Uh, Not a very steep cliff, but it's high enough that you definitely have the advantage of just a higher line of sight from where the fort is. Very difficult to penetrate um, unless you're like doing it at night. And there's a little inlet that you have to take to get into that area. And final ulkalaras people, uh, this is just a little spoiler alert, but it's hard to... Um, get to that fort because as you are, um, if you're trying to go in through the inlet, you will be attacked from both sides. And so Ukalala is just trying to get close to the fort so that he can propose peace to Umu and the chiefs of Ava'u. And so he tries to get close to the fort through the front and he can't, he's having a hard time just uh, trying to ascend up the, the side because it's steep. And so he tries other methods as well to get close to the fort and he's unsuccessful. And so his people that he took to Vava with him are just advising him against it. So then his final idea was just to go in a smaller canoe and try to get close to the shore. And then he would just speak as loud as he can so that the natives, uh, that the people of mavau can hear him. And hopefully he would draw them out so that they can hear what he has to say. And so this is exactly what happens. He starts speaking and the people of Wabao start coming out to the shore um, and he's thinking they're coming to listen to him. But then Mariner says, one of them threw a piece of yam, another a piece of pork and telling it should be the last that they should get from Wabao. Pava'u is famous for good yams and great quantities of hogs, as well as for ngatu of finer quality and better printed, the tree from which the printing color is procured being very scarce and very inferior at ha'pai. They next threw them a piece of ngatu, advising in the most friendly manner to wear that instead of scrubbing their skins with a coarse mat of ha'pai, and as this was all they meant to give them, they were to tear it in small pieces divided amongst them, and wear each as a rag. During all these insults, the king, contrary to the expectation of everyone, for he was of a very irritable temper, kept himself perfectly cool and said nothing. When he had arrived near enough to address them conveniently, he made a speech of about an hour's length, in which, with a wonderful degree of art and eloquence, he endeavored to persuade them that he was perfectly innocent of the death of Tuponiwa and that he should be exceedingly sorry if their mistaken notions of his sentiments and conduct should occasion a war with Vava'u. He then told them how much he loved and respected his aunt Toi'umu, and how unhappy he should be if the late unfortunate affair, which he could neither well foresee nor help, should occasion a quarrel with her. Nothing grieved him more, he said, than his best intentions should be thus regarded with suspicion but he hoped that their candor and liberality upon a little cool reflection would lead them to place that confidence in him, which his own consciousness of upright intentions gave him reason to expect. And he trusted that they would submit to his rule and government as (laughs) formally. I can't help but read this and think of just... Finau Ulukalala was like so ahead of his time. He would be a brilliant politician in today's political climate. So picture Finau Ulukalala standing on a canoe without his, um, strong warriors next to him yeah so he's presenting himself in this vulnerable moment and he is trying to make a case for peace with the people of Vavau who are coming out to the shore to listen to him and so some of the Vavau chiefs come out to the shore and they tell him that they would acknowledge him as their king in Vavau and um and as formally cuz he is from Vavau he's from Tuanuku they would want for him to come back to Vavau Establish his home base in Vava'u and cut off all communications with Hapai, basically telling him that the chiefs in Hapai can't be trusted and that they're all treacherous. Or if he chooses to reside at Hapai, they would send him an annual tribute upon the condition that he nor his chiefs or any of his people from Hapai would visit Vava'u under any pretext whatsoever. Basically, just the Vava'u people just wanted to be left alone. They wanted to just live a peaceful and quiet life. Mariner writes, Finau then took up the discourse, stating that he could not give his consent to these terms, which were inconsistent with his dignity as a supreme governor of both Ha'apai and Vava'u and that it was exceedingly hard he should suffer for the rashness and impolicy of others, and that they should put confidence in his wisdom and justice, which he hoped he had always Merited, and then he declares his innocence again in the murder of Tupouniua, and he professes his, the proof of his love and affection for the people of Ava'u by reminding them of his readiness when he joined Tupouniua in the assassination of Tukuaho, which subsequently freed Vavau from the tyranny of Tukuaho, and then he reminded them also of how he and Tupouniua. Uh, fought together, you know, after the assassination, that he fought with him side by side against the, the warriors of Hihifo. And so they go back and forth and they banter about liberty and wanting to live free. And Mariner writes, in reply to all this, they again assured him of their love and respect for him as an individual, meaning Fina ul-kala. But as they were determined to live free, they would neither propose nor accept any terms. And by this time, Finau Ulukalala has heard enough, and he ordered his mata'apule to conduct him to his canoe. Turning towards the Vava'u people, he says to them, Live then among yourselves in idleness, and we will return to hapai Mariner writes, During that time that Finau was addressing the Vava'u people, the mata'apule and warriors that surrounded his canoe, among whom was myself, appeared much moved, and several shed tears for his powers of persuasion were such that in defending his own cause, he seemed to be the most worthy, the most innocent, and the most unjustly used. On this account, the greater chiefs and old Matapule of Ava'u remained in the fortress, fearing to listen to his arguments, lest being drawn aside by the power of his eloquence. They might mistake that for true, which was not, and even led the young and ardent warriors into an error by persuading them that what he said was re- reasonable and unjust. So this just tells you, you know, Fina amongst his many talents, one of them is just being a ngutu malie, and that is somebody who has the gift of convincing you to take up on a cause that would ultimately end up harming you. <laughs> or even ending your life. He totally had that gift. Very few people I've met who have this gift and boy, when they have it, they know how to use it. As they're leaving, Mariner takes a look at the fortress and he describes the fort. Uh, The fortress on the top of a steep, rising ground as seen from the canoes presented a formidable and warlike appearance. Its extent seemed enormous, and the tops of the white reeds, which were seen at a distance above the banks of red clay, the whole being strongly illuminated by the sun, represented to my imagination the spears and javelins of ancient heroes drawn upon in a battle array. On the top of the banks, a number of warriors armed with clubs and spears were running to and fro with fine light streamers, full 13 feet long, attached to their heads and arms, which floating in the wind produced a most romantic effect. The streamers consist of the fine membrane stripped from the underside of the coconut leaf and are finer than gold-beater skin. The king and his matapule being now returned to their canoe, the expedition proceeded out of the inlet and shortly arrived at a small island on which they landed and stripped it of almost all its gava. It is here proper to mention that all the islands adjacent to Vava'u were deserted by order of Tor'umu, that all the people might be more safely situated in or near the fortress in case of an invasion. The three canoes afterwards proceeded a little farther onward and put in for the night at the small island of Hunga, about two miles from Vava'u. The next morning, they resumed their voyage and arrived at Ha'ano the nearest of the Hapai Islands in the afternoon. So there you go. Uh, Depending on the weather, you could go from um, Hapai to Vavao or vice versa, just overnight. So they left at night and they arrived in Hapai at noon. Okay, this is a good time to end. Because uh, we are right at the end of chapter 5 and going into chapter 6. And uh, this is the actual beginning of the war in Vava'u. So we see that Fina'ul Kalala tried um, the more diplomatic method of approaching um, Toi'umu and the chiefs of Vava'u and making a plea for peace. And this was done on the advice of the priests of his gods. And so... Um, we all know the nature of Fina Urukalala by now. And I mean, do we really believe that this is what he wants? Well, uh, probably not because in the next chapter, it's called a war in mabau And so the war is inevitable. And so I'm going to save that for the next episode. Um, I do have to say this episode was uh, probably just kind of, yeah, there wasn't a lot going on. We got a little distraction with a wedding. Uh, this was Fina Urukalala's son ongo who are we are introduced to for the first time, and also um, the other chief that came with him from Samoa. His name was Vuna, and a very interesting history with that one. I'm still doing a little research on him, and so that's why I chose not to um, go into um, to Vuna and also even to Ongo because there's actually a history of them uh, being in Samoa, and it wasn't that they went there voluntarily. Uh, Moengangongo fled over there, and then uh, Vuna was actually exiled there, and he was deposed by a woman. And so I really want to find out that history. So one of the things I'm loving about this podcast is we're starting to uncover these really powerful women in Tonga's uh, past, you know. So we've learned um, in this podcast about Tupou Moheofo, um, we are now in the midst of a battle in Vava'u, and leading, you know, Vava'u is um, toi umu, um and she was a great chiefess of Vava'u. And now I'm reading about Vuna, and so Vuna was a Tu'i Wava'u. He was sent to Vava'u um, in the past to um, quell an uprising that was happening there, and this was, um, I would suspect, before the time. That Aho was um, assassinated, and um, and so there was a lot of young warriors that were doing expeditions to uh, Fiji, um, and a lot of um, a lot of them were putting themselves in the service of um, some of these um, chiefs that were fighting civil wars in Fiji, and so basically they were mercenaries for them. And they were coming back to Tonga after those wars, and bringing just some of the habits and things that they picked up in um, in Fiji. And so, when they came to Vava'u, um, a lot of people in Vavau were picking up on those habits and things, and so it was causing a lot of great concern amongst um, the chiefs, you know, the Tongan chiefs in uh, Vava'u at the time. And so, Vuna was sent to Vava'u to quell the uprising. But then he went there and he ended up um, taking up the title of Tuivavau for himself. And so basically, uh, he didn't go and do what he was sent there for. And so um, Fuspala, who was a, I believe, a Tuikonokpulu. I'm going to research this and we will talk about this in future episodes. But she was the one that was instrumental in getting him deposed and then exiled. And so he ended up going to Samoa. So very interesting side story. I promise I'm gonna research that and get that out to you, uh, because um, it's so fascinating. Yes. Anyway, so that's it for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in, and um, I want to thank you all for your support because now uh, this podcast is at 5,000 plays, and that is just so awesome. Because I really only thought maybe like a hundred people were gonna listen to it, but. Uh, these episodes have been played 5,000 times, so I want to thank you all. I have received so many emails from you, and I promise you I will do a q and um, I think I have enough now to have a really good Q&A episode. And so thank you again for sending me questions and also just the comments and um, all the positive feedback from all of you. Is uh, just really awesome and makes me really just want to commit to uh, getting these episodes out to you. And then I've gotten questions on doing like some kind of a book. Um, what would we call it? Um, because I sure as hell don't want to call it a book club. I want to call it something cool. But yeah, I'm so open to like getting together and just uh, even just like in an episode. Um, where I want to sit at the table with a uh, few of you and we talk about, you know, just some of the things that you've learned and the, or you've enjoyed from the book um, and just having those kind of conversations. I think that would be awesome. So if any of you are keen to doing that, um, let me know and we can get that arranged. Anyway, thank you again. Tune in next week. See And have a good week.
1: Kapu, kaposi o kulo, o kulo se o faa, lopo ke mata, me o mo me o la kaetai, ma ali efi fi, o ko ata da che cafio sei a rotolo ecco hai tenelo hai tenelo così atteso allo sal e stendimi mai più così attalata come come uomo e ao si ho potuto Tetaua, o fa'ketaua, ko disi kolonga vai anai te e ni marpu, ko Kete tau moa o fa ke tau fa moa kote si kolo e vai anai tua te itu uke tau o Eka pe'a, se ha. te Ata <muchas> he